What's up, everyone? Welcome to BGGM Brews. This is episode 67. We have a very special guest today. I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to get a hold of Robert Deagle. And he was, it was one of those things. I just sent him a message kind of at a random time. And as I said to him, I kind of shot my shot. And he was kind enough to say, hey, man, I'm down. Let's do it. And we actually recorded uh, later that day, of all things. So uh, thank you so much, Robert, for uh, making the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. And, and like I said, I'm a huge fan of, of your work and your approach and your contributions in terms of you know your breakdowns and, and how you view jiu-jitsu and your thoughts on it. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I think you'll all en- en- enjoy listening to it. We're going to jump right into it. Uh, before we do, real quick, shout out to our sponsors, Crown Rash Guards. Uh, you can check them out, www.crownrashguards.com. You can also find them on social media, Instagram and Facebook, at Crown Rash Guards. Be sure to use our promo code BRUISE, B-R-E-W-S, BRUISE, for 20% off your next order. They make durable, sleek, as I like to say, um, Wakanda-style uh, rash guards that uh, look brand new, and I've been using them for months now, and, and they look just like how they came in the box. So check them out, crownrashguards.com, and let them know that we sent you over there. Guys, this is our our interview with Robert Deagle. Enjoy, leave a comment, share, and uh, we'll catch you down the road. All right, so we are here. I am joined uh, with Robert Deagle. And uh, I, I really appreciate you making the time on such short notice to, to hop on the podcast. I just kind of reached out. I shot my shot. And uh, you're like, yeah, I'm down. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. All right. Awesome. So so listen, um, you have a very, I, I think, unique presence on social media when it comes to like jujitsu practitioners. Um, I always find your long form breakdowns of video and techniques, um, specifically on your story. Um, you've been watching a lot of wrestling recently and I found that really interesting. Um, what got you, like, how did you form? I don't want to talk about branding so much, but what got you to say, this is what I like to put out content wise on social media and contribute to the social, to the jiu-jitsu community. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because, I mean, you, you even brought up the word branding. I mean, I'll talk a little bit about my thoughts on the topic of, you know, I came into this sport not with the mindset of being a businessman. Like, I don't, that's that wasn't what appealed to me. What appealed to me was, like, I really like, I like research with a minimum of ambiguity involved. So I was studying philosophy. Uh, and I was pursuing a, a career in teaching that, actually. Funnily enough, I have right next to me. <laughs> I just happened to have this right near me. So this is philosoph- the Philosophical Investigations by Ludwig Wittgenstein. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's it just, it just like right next to me. But anyway, so like um, uh, the issue with philosophy, uh, all, at, at least if you take Wittgenstein's views seriously and, and, and thinkers – associated, I shouldn't say associated with him, but thinkers related to him, is that there's a real lack of uh, 
purpose and focus to it. So there's so much ambiguity in the discipline, right? I won't get too deep into that, but I'm just talking about like my own personal thoughts about it. So I really like research that doesn't have ambiguity, which is to say, so let's say when we ask a question, right? And we want to research the answer to that question. If we can answer it in specific measurable ways, to me, I like that way more because it's much more, the, the research is more focused. There's like a goal to it. Uh, sorry, <laughs> let me turn my phone off. My bad. Uh, there's like a there's like a goal to it, right? Like it it yeah, yeah. it doesn't uh, it doesn't meander into like stupidity, right? Like like let me give you an example. Let's say you and your friend are in like a super intense debate about like the the greatest Star Wars character of all time. Like ultimately, that's just your opinion, man. And it, people, people get really heated about those kinds of conversations. And like, and I, I brought up a silly example, but people bring up, people get into like really intense arguments about that because like what they do is they start a conversation where there is no specific measurement by which they can establish the veracity of the claims involved, right? So, okay, for instance, if like, this is a, like, this is just a really simple claim. Like, okay, if we say, who is taller, Ben or Bill, right? That's, we can measure that, right? But if we say, who is uh, a better person, Ben or Bill? Oh, there's a level of ambiguity there. So what I like about jujitsu, what appealed to me about it was that I was studying philosophy at the same time. And that's what I thought my career was going to be in. But I started to see in jujitsu this, I always loved jujitsu. I was very, very into, into it, even when I didn't think I was going to be teaching it professionally. I just really loved it. But I started to see it as a way for me to engage in research without the ambiguity of philosophy. Now, <laughs> I went full-time when I had no social media presence. I dropped out of graduate school and I started pursuing philosophy, uh, sorry, started pursuing jujitsu primarily because m- my coach gave me the confidence that it was possible. Okay. I had no social media presence. I was some random loser in the blue basement who nobody knew about. And a friend of mine, a teammate of mine, he always likes to, he's very insistent. He's like, you always got to mention it was me that told you to get social media. So it was, it was Mike Rockshan. <laughs> so it was, Instagram handle is cool, right? So if anyone's listening to this, you could be a cool <laughs> Yeah, got, Rob's giving you the appropriate credit. He wasn't the only one, but he, he's always like, he always like brings up that he did push me pretty heavily to start a social media. Cause like, I was like, I, I didn't have an Instagram. I had no social media. I wasn't interested in it. I, you know, but I went full time in jujitsu with, I don't recommend this to people. I don't recommend going full time in jujitsu before you have tested the social media waters. Because quite frankly, what I've subsequently learned is a big part of your career is going to be contingent upon that. So anyway, so I, I very like reluctantly made, social media because I was like, well, you're probably right. I got to brand myself. Like I was, you have no idea how stressed out I was at that point in my life about like money because I was like, here I was trying to make a career in jujitsu. Not really sure financially how I was going to do it, but I, I knew like I was teaching classes at a few schools and I also was working. Um, so that's how I was paying the bills. Um, and I didn't really have like a direction in terms of like where my career was going to go per se. I just was of the mindset, keep getting better, keep improving win tournaments, gain respect, make money, right? But that's not, that is how it works, but that's not the only way how it works is what I've realized. So I started my social media and at first I was like, I didn't really know how to use the platform. I was like, I'm not sure what I should do. And what I started doing 
more or less soon enough was I was just like, I'm just going to like do what I, I'm just going to post like what I'm actually interested in. Like, I'm not going to try to be like, there was one point where I thought about like, should I be like a shit talker? Is that, is, will that boost my brand? I don't, I don't know. Like I'm not naturally interested in shit talking. Now I am naturally, <laughs> some people will tell you that I am interested in shit talking because unfortunately being from New York, I'm very naturally argumentative. Like I, I don't, I've, I've started some arguments with people that I probably should not have. Uh, and <laughs> if I think I'm right, I'll keep going. But like, it's to me, that's a shit talking. It's just like a point that I think I'm right about. So I'll just like keep going on it. Um, but like, I, so for me, it's like, uh, when I put out stuff on social media, it's just cause that's what I'm interested in. Like when I put out those stories talking about just technique and everything, man, uh, there are a lot of things in jujitsu that I just find not interesting. And a lot of, to me, What's the most interesting thing about jujitsu is that what's wonderful about it is you, man, you don't have to take people's word on it. You don't have to take my word on it. Just go out and look, evaluate the evidence. The difficulty with that is, is that quite frankly, it takes a long time. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff to watch, you know, to really get a good sense for what's happening. You have to be very patient with studying. and you know, unfortunately I have nothing better to do. This is my job now. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time watching tape, a lot of time studying <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. So I see my content that I put out. Now, look, I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, I put out like technique videos, right? That's not, to me, that's kind of like the, that's like the candy of social media, right? That's, that's not that. I mean, you can learn from it, but it's not that substantive, right? The really substantive stuff I put out, in my opinion, is the more instructional content. The, my, my actual instructionals or my stories where I talk about tech, I like, I'll, I'll post, oops, I'll post, uh, I'll post like, like a match and I'll break down what's happening. Like, I really love doing that. That to me is like, because I don't like, there's two things I really don't like, and they're, they're, they're very connected. I, I really don't like people who take things on authority. I, I don't want to listen. I don't want people to listen to me because they're like, well, you know, he's he's a, a big name and blah 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 blah, right? Like, I, it's not important. It you should be listening to me because you because I should be able to show you. I should be able to cite and match examples. I, I I when I used to teach in New York, I would always tell my students. If you don't believe what, uh, something about what I'm saying about a technique, ask me and I will cite match examples and I want you to go look those match examples up. I want you to go see for yourself. Okay. Um, and now, of course, like in a class, 30 students or each one is like, oh, I think that's bullshit. I think that's bullshit. <laughs> it's going to bog down the class. So there's like a limit to this, of course. But like, you know, like uh, the more advanced guys you've got, I'll always do that for. Like I want to cite examples. Okay. So I don't like do, I, I don't take anyone's word on authority and I don't want anyone to take my word on authority. So those are the two things that are associated, right? That's like basically the same thing, but it's just me and other people. Don't take my word on anything. If you don't believe what I'm saying, ask me for evidence. I do this all the time. People in DMs ask me questions. They're like, what do you think about this? And I'll tell them and they'll be like, really? Why do you think that? I'm like, well, and I'll send them, check out this match, check out this match, check out this match. Because that's, what's wonderful about jujitsu because we have like contrast jujitsu with, and I'm not disparaging this other martial art, but contrast it with Aikido. I think Aikido is fine, but it's not evidence-based. Right? Aikido is more of like personal cultivation. You know what I mean? It's not really about like actually learning fighting skills. Jujitsu is wonderful mm -hmm. because 
there's evidence that we can use to there are rather I should say there's data we can use to create evidence which that is going to tell us where to go so yeah so what I I try to do is I try to on my social media not fall prey to it's like I want to respect the intelligence of other people in the community okay and what so because what I could do is I could just put out dumb marketing content, which is what I think the vast majority of people do. Most people are doing that. Uh, but what I like to do is I like to look, <laughs> you know, it's like they're just putting out stuff that it's just like, oh, this is so bad. And I think, you know, it's bad. People that are, there's a lot of people that are really good that put out bad techniques and they know it's bad, but they're just like, these idiots will know they're going to, they're going to watch it anyway. <laughs> and it's like, uh, like I try to assume the intelligence of my followers and even sometimes I think like, well, maybe it's a little too technically complex and intricate. I, I try to put it out anyway, because I want, I want to view what I'm doing as being a researcher who is surveying the available evidence. And, and the reason I have a job is because I have the time to do that. Maybe other people don't necessarily have the time to do that. So I'm doing that for them. Okay. And then when they ask me to cite my sources, so to speak, I ought to be able to do that. So that, that's really what I'm doing when I put out those stories. I'm, in a sense, I'm citing my sources. You get what I mean? Yeah. And, and I'm kind of curious, like, everything you just said is, is funny because I, mm. I, I studied computer science in my undergrad. I ended up double majoring in computer science and mathematics. I'm, I'm very much a, I like, I like to prove that I'm right or prove that you're wrong. I know it sounds kind of egotistical. I'm right, you're wrong, but you get the idea. Like I liked the black and white nature of being right, especially in mathematics. And I hated the subjective nature of papers. So the part of the reason why I went to computer science was I was interested in computers, but I wanted to avoid writing papers. So I got okay. into it and I ended up loving it and, and it became my career. But I guess my question is, my first question is this, how did you stay with being a philosophy major given that you have such a, scientific empirical approach to everything i feel like they're 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 contrast and two um, yeah. when you come to the point of evaluating techniques and their validity and showing proof how much of that is film study and how much of that is i have to myself perform the move both um let's say just mm -hmm. to feel the technique and then also with the fully resisting opponent to see the legit the legitimacy of it yeah great seriously great questions very good uh, so, okay. So first one, I feel like many people with my philosophical viewpoint, I was essentially duped into philosophy by philosophy. <laughs> okay. So, uh, what do I mean? It's a little complicated. So, um, so I have right here next to me, I have right here next to me, a bunch of Wittgenstein books, among other things. I've got the philosophical investigations. I've got the Tractatus. I've got culture and value. I've got The Duty of Genius, and then I, I have a couple other books. I have The Zhuangzhou, which is, he was a Chinese philosopher who was similar to Wittgenstein in a lot of ways, I think. Um, so, okay, Wittgenstein once described philosophy as not being something he was curious about, but rather it was something that attacked him from behind. A little bit of a Freudian slip there. But so, in a sense, I feel the same way about philosophy, that, it, that he was describing it for him. When I was younger, I found myself constantly being struck with these 
what, what I understand now to be metaphysical questions. So for instance, one of the questions that I'm sure a lot of other people have thought this, I thought this when I was really young, I was like 12 when I first thought of this and I later learned the actual name for it. So there is a philosophical, uh, again, a question of epistemology that is like, okay, how do I know that what I perceive to be green, you also perceive to be green? And how do I know that you don't perceive it as blue? Well, what you could say is, well, you could just ask them what the color is. Well, but if I, my whole life, have seen it as green, and you, your whole life, you've seen the same color shade, but you learn uh, to it is to what it is what I would refer to as blue, but you you've always seen it as green, so we both call it green. The question is, how do we how do we know that that's not happening? Well, I, that b bothered me. You know, I remember thinking that I'll never forget when I first thought that. I was on the Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger ride in Disney World, and I was looking at one of the aliens, and I thought that I was like, the the blue of that. Why do I not? I don't know why this happened. I just I just thought this, and so frequently throughout my life, I've had these moments where I'm like, and then, and sorry to interrupt, but at okay. that point, you ask yourself, is the artist like Monet or Picasso? Are they seeing a different color spectrum than us that allows them to be so artistic with their color palettes? And then you really yeah. go off and deep because I actually had this exact same thought, not at the same young age as you, but I was thinking that too. If is yeah. my red the same as your red? Is my blue the same as your blue? We don't know. Well, the, so I don't want to go too deep in the question because I'm more, it'll take forever, <laughs> but I will briefly give uh, uh, like an idea. <laughs> it's like, um, okay. What I, what I learned is that it's, it's actually what Wittgenstein would refer to as a spurious metaphysical speculation, which is to say it's a sort of question that actually there, there's a level of ambiguity to it that renders it unanswerable. There's no real answer to the question we can give. All that matters ultimately, as Wittgenstein and, and others argue, is about use and practicality. To what extent does solving these problems affect our everyday lives? And there's a lot of complicated baggage that goes with that. But anyway, so so I think the reason why I stuck with philosophy is because from a young age, it really, I wanted answers to what I perceived to be the big questions of life. And I didn't want to proceed. So Wittgenstein describes it as like, he doesn't want to proceed forwards until he's gone far enough backwards. But the problem is what you learn as you really pursue philosophy, honestly, is that there is no end to the amount of time you can go backwards. It's the problem of the infinite regress, right? Every answer gives you a new problem. And so you just keep going backwards and backwards and backwards. And what you do is you philosophy in a sense starts to become divorced from everyday life. Like modern academic Western philosophy is very pointless in my opinion. Like the vast majority of the topics being discussed are ve very, very pointless. And, and, and academic philosophers try very hard to pretend that what they're doing matters like they're like no actually it has like really serious value in like artificial intelligence they always bring up artificial intelligence as like a justification for what they're doing but it's it just it's very pointless um is it pointless or abstract i would say it's i would say it's pointless like it's 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 pointless because it's not just abstract because abstraction okay. can have a value it's pointless because it's I think they're asking questions that aren't actually, in fact, real questions. Like the like the problem of the inverted spectrum, the problem that I was alluding to earlier, that's actually like a false problem. Because what it means to say that a color is a color, if you take Wittgenstein's account of it, which I agree with, is that 
use determines the, the meaning of a word is its use in language. So if I refer to it as green and you refer to it as, as green and communally that allows us to cooperate to achieve shared goals, it's green. Like that, there's no other sense in which it can be green. That's what it means to call something green. So spending endless time trying to figure out the metaphysics of it. Is it actually green? Is it this? It's pointless. And there's so many questions that are like that, that are, are genuinely, in my opinion, they, they are abstract, but abstraction has a value. You know, abstraction in and of itself is not bad. It's just what I would refer to as speculative metaphysical questions are um, misleading at best. I think there are certain questions. They're valid questions. It's, I, I thought of them as a child. I've, I've thought of them my whole life, right? Like, for instance, an, a metaphysical question that I think people ask all the time is, does free will exist, right? This is a very natural question to ask, you know? The answer to the question is, there is no answer to the question. And I, people don't like that. They're like, there has to be an answer. There has to be an answer. I don't want to get too deep in the woods on this, but my opinion is there isn't actually an answer to the question. And anyway, so it's funny that you are educated in computer science. I wish that I had done computer science instead, actually. I think I would have been much better suited to it. A big part of <laughs> yeah. A big part of why it was not that difficult to dissuade me to switch to jujitsu from grad school was that I I was getting a lot of pushback from you know, my professors about a lot of the things I was interested in. Like Wittgenstein, I don't know if you or your, your listeners are aware, is not popular in modern Western academia, especially not in America. They really hate him. Wittgenstein, um, I was very interested in, ironically, I was interested in the American pragmatists. They're not very popular right now in America. And I was interested in Chinese, certain strains of Chinese philosophy, especially Zhuangzhou. And they are <laughs> don't even bring that up. They don't want to hear that at all. So I was I was advised to the professor told me she said if you want a career I recommend picking something popular right now writing about that and then someday you can write about Wittgenstein. I was like, why am I going to do that? What's the point? I don't, I don't I I went to grad school because I wanted to pursue to research topics of interest to me, you know. And Wittgenstein's in a sense he's something of an anti philosopher, more of that than a uh, hold on one second. Okay, so whenever, uh, what was I talking about? I don't remember. Oh, so you were talking the first half of, yeah, the first half. So I asked you a two-part question, and you were talking about the philosophy side of how you got attacked from the back, so to speak, to get into yeah, yeah. Um, into philosophy. And then the second part of my yeah. question was, um, how do you validate the techniques that any technique in terms of being legitimate? Is it primarily film study, or do you need to yourself do the technique both yourself just to feel it and then also against a fully resisting opponent to see if it's actually applicable or is just seeing a video of high level guys hitting it various times enough evidence for you. What to you is like a critical mass of evidence to say this is legitimate and can be applied at the highest level. Well, the tricky thing about jujitsu, jujitsu data curation, if you will, is that it's not super organized. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you will have, you know, a lot of things that are worth watching in, on different websites. And, um, you know, you got to pay to get different websites. Some Sometimes the things are recorded poorly. Sometimes they're not recorded at all. Um, so a lot of what you're doing when you're studying jujitsu is, and also I will say the, the lack of a consistent rule set sort of messes things up, if you will, because it's, you constantly have to evaluate, like, to what extent is the rule set influencing this? 
there's things like that you have to take into account. This actually advantages and disadvantages to that. The advantage of having a bunch of rule sets is that people try different things. So you get more stuff to look at. You can you know evaluate more data. That is an advantage to it. Um, but so for me, it's always a balance between watching stuff happening in matches and also testing stuff out in person. I always balance those two things. I think everyone should. I think you're always going to be doing both where you're going to watch stuff. You're going to go, oh, hmm, okay, that's interesting. Did that work just because the other guy didn't know the defense or was that actually proactively forced? Then you've got to figure it out. you got to go and watch, try to find more examples of it happening. Go to, go to your training partners. Try it, on, try it out on your training partners. In time, if there are good defenses and they're intelligent guys, they'll figure stuff out. So you try it over and over again. They, they come up with new problems for it. So I have a guard that I play a lot called reverse shin on shin. It's one of my favorite guards. And the system for that guard has proliferated <laughs> a lot because intelligent uh, and, and uh, you know creative training partners have come up with different problems for me. And then I've seen in matches, I go, ah, okay, interesting. That guy's doing that in this situation. That's kind of similar to the reverse shin on shin. And I think, could I plug that into my system as a potential solution to these problems I'm facing? And, you know, it's, I went on like a, so I'll, I'll give you a specific example. I went on a really deep dive on the donkey guard, actually, for like two days. I was watching everything I could on donkey guard. And I was very convinced. I was like, I think donkey guard can be used to solve one of the problems of the version engine. And I was very convinced of it. And I still think it can if you have really long legs, which I don't. So <laughs> I went for like two days, like a really like long research. And I was like, very, very like, I was like, I think Donkey Guard can work here actually. You know, Donkey Guard's this wacky, crazy thing everyone like laughs at and makes fun of. And I was like, I think this is a use for it. And then I went to the training room and I tried it out. And within like two rolls, I was like, nah, it's not good. <laughs> you know, the, so it's, it sort of got debunked, if you will, you know, and like, and that's good. It's not a bad thing. And it was, it's kind of like a funny, that's always, it's sort of like a funny story of like, did I waste my time? No, I don't think I wasted my time because there's always going to be, what I did was I didn't waste my time, so to speak. I just learned that that's not, eh, not really a viable strategy, but that's, to me, that's the fun part. It's like, you've got to always go down those, you got to go down those rabbit holes. Otherwise you're never going to find out what's there. You know what I mean? So that's, it's it's fun to me but anyway so kind of like a not a, i'm not giving a great answer i think but you got to give attention to both film study and actual like in person like testing you know what i mean it's always a balance okay now on that point one thing i've and i'm sure i mean you've had countless more hours on the mats and and studying stuff than i have but I found coming from another sport that one thing about jujitsu that I think this is my personal opinion, it's a very young sport and the coaching, the coaching methodologies I think are still um, very immature and there's a lot of maturation that can happen. And the, oh, yeah. the example I cite for that is your typical jujitsu, typical, I, I know there are exceptions everywhere, but to me, the typical jujitsu class is you go in you learn some techniques. Maybe you learn it as part of a system like this is De La Hiva guard. This is how you maintain the guard. These are the attacks and sweeps you can do from that. Potentially you get even that, but it's still 
if you were to build a concept map of your jujitsu game, it's you're filling in all these individual nodes and there's no just basic principles, like let's say posture, center of gravity, stuff like that. Because I'm starting to think just like the other sports I've competed as like, even if I'm a day one white belt, I think the instructor, me again, could start instructing very general principles and concepts that would allow that person to do better jujitsu just following those. Like if you have a good posture and you keep your elbows tucked, you're better off than just opening your elbows and doing like there's stuff like that, that I feel like they, that it could be explained. Now that's my opinion. You obviously Mm -hmm. been in this longer. What I'm wondering is, do you think it's possible that jujitsu is being right now? It seems super complicated with thousands of different techniques do you think it's possible that jujitsu could actually be really simple and we just haven't figured out or the majority <laughs> hasn't figured out how to simplify it enough? Like, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? I'm not trying to well, pigeonhole you. I'm just trying to get you into that, into yeah, that area. Yeah. No, that was a fantastic question. So basically you're kind of, you brought up two things I want to touch upon. Okay. So the first one is that um, I'm curious about what sport you played because my suspicion is that you played at a pretty high level probably, right? So I played um, collegiate tennis. So I played tennis since I was like seven, all the way through wow. college and beyond. And I actually made it farther as a coach. So I coached, you know, tennis academies with professional players in a couple mm-hmm. spots in the world. So one of which was yeah. IMG Academies in Bradenton, Florida. I don't know if you're familiar with IMG Academies, but anyway, that that was my background and uh, yeah. posture, stance, mechanics. That was like the key. Um, right. And then how you actually do a specific technique, that's the own person's kind of flourish and, and you know, right. what they bring attribute wise. So anyway, that's my background, but that's not important. We're here for you. This is, I want to get no, your no, take. It, <laughs> no, it is important. I'm, and I'm glad, I'm glad I asked because have you ever on any other podcast heard me rant about how tennis and ping pong are the greatest games on the planet? No, I have not. I didn't try to set you up. I honestly have not heard you say that. <laughs> no, no, I believe you. I, believe you. I am a, not a hardcore fan. Like if you bring up names, I'm not going to know them. It's just on a conceptual level. I'm very interested in tennis and ping pong. So here's the thing. Here's where this sort of tension emerges with what you're describing. So everything you said about the development of, of skill and knowledge in athletes, 100% on point. And other more mature sports actually understand that. Every serious jiu-jitsu coach also understands that, whether they're able to consciously express it in words or not. The thing is, jujitsu is not just a sport. It's also a lifestyle, right? So what it is, is jujitsu has in many ways much in common with yoga. I would say it has more in common with yoga than it does with, with, with traditional sports. The goal of the average sports coach is one thing only, the production of high-level athletes. They don't care about anything else. They don't care about, are you having fun? Are you having a good time? Are you are you enjoying the environment? These things are irrelevant in more mature sports. Now, they can do that. They can get away with that because what they're doing is the, the money they're making isn't coming from like having a school or something. I mean, I, it's it, like the, the students are all trying to win competitions, right? Like it's not about having like a club, if you will, right? I mean, maybe I'm sure there are uh, the, the terms are probably wrong, but you get what I mean. It's not like a fun social environment. It's guys are here because they want to goddamn win. That's why they're coming to learn. From no, them, right? the you're right. People are coming mm-hmm. in a competitive environment. People are coming 
because they're coming to the coach because they want to mm -hmm. perform at a high level and win. Whereas yeah. um, traditional like yoga studio people, and I, I say that with all respect, but your, your recreational jujitsu person is paying a, a, you know, a membership fee to come mm -hmm. for a service. They're not coming there to win world championships. Right. They're coming there for a service. Yeah. Whereas a lot yes. of times competitive athletes are, might be even competing to get the opportunity to be with that coach. Yeah. So, so the trick is there's a dichotomy between, and here's, I actually think this is very interesting. I think there's perceived to be a dichotomy. I think a lot of coaches think, well, I've got to either coach in a dumbed down way that people will like, so they want to stay around and pay my bills. Okay. Or if I'm too serious, they're going to get bored. You know, if I talk about off balancing mechanics, they're going to get bored, right? That's, I think a lot of coaches think this way. Now, I don't own an academy. I've never owned an academy. Someday my goal is to own an academy. And maybe I will be like, listen, well, I totally get it. You got to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's possible that maybe they are all right, that you do have to sort of, in a sense, dumb things down a little bit. But I think that you don't actually. I think it's entirely possible to be a very serious coach, to do things in the way that you're describing, which is more commonly done in more traditional or serious sports, where the focus is not on like, you have like a class structure in jujitsu is not really designed to optimize skill development, the traditional class structure. It is designed to make you feel like you're having, it's designed to entertain you, right? You, you're having a good time, right? It's almost like, a, it's almost like in a sense, it's, I kind of find it's interesting to compare Compare a jujitsu class, the average jujitsu class, to a video game. It's much more like a video game than it is to like a like a, a study session. You know what I mean? Like when you're studying, it's not always going to be fun. You know, it's going to be you. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I'm I love it, but that's just my personality. I understand not everyone is going to like that. Even a lot of people that are very good, you know, they're not going to like sitting there studying for long periods of time. I, I like that, but a lot of people don't. So a class is more like a video game where it's like, it's just designed. Like there's like, uh, you know, you gives you quick rewards, right? Like stuff like that. Um, and so, but my question is, is like, it, because, because the average jujitsu person, I, it would be interesting to see the data on, if you took tennis, you took jujitsu, what percentage of people who play tennis are doing so with at least some competitive aspirations versus jujitsu. My suspicion is that, in tennis, you would have your casual hobbyists. You do have that, obviously, but you would have way more competitors. So that's going to shape the culture. Whereas in jujitsu, we have way more hobbyists. So that's going to shape the culture. Um, I just personally think that you can, like for me, I will say, if I never competed again, I would still want to train the way I do because it's more fulfilling to me. If I had a regular full-time job, I would still want to train the way I do because it's more fulfilling to me. And I think there are actually more, I think people would be shocked. I think that real skill development, serious skill development is in, I think in the long term, much, much, much more rewarding. I know guys who don't train full time, who are very good guys that, for instance, train under, you know, my coach, John Danner, they've trained under him for, for a long time. They don't train full time, but they, they, um, are, they, they train very seriously. And that's more rewarding to them. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, so it's like, um, I think that is a big part of it is like a cultural thing. And I, I think it's a cultural thing with some expectations in it, which I don't, I don't know. Are they actually true? I don't, I'm not sure if they actually are. I just know from my personal experience that 
you know, like I will talk about myself as a coach. I'm never, I don't, maybe someday I'll, I'll go back on this one. <laughs> I don't ever plan on being the guy to dumb things down. I, I like conveying information to people as honestly as I can. That's what I see my job as being. And the day I have to dumb things down is kind of the day I don't want to do this anymore. If that's what I, if that, cause that's not how I envision it. If that's what I have to do, it's not really, I'm not really into it that much, but I haven't felt the need to do that yet. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think I will. I think there are a lot of coaches out there who don't dumb things down, so to speak, and are still very successful. Like I'll give you an example. I was training at the Academy of Carl Massaro, who is a, a black belt under Henzo Gracie. And he, uh, he runs a very mm-hmm. successful academy with with a ton of like hobbyists. I don't think he dumbs things down. He has a very quick warm up. He goes through some very concise, effective techniques. He puts them into the context of our, of our wider grappling game. He doesn't just show the moves and just like, all right, guys, go do it now. He explains like the wider contextual purpose of the movements, and then we roll. Right? I think that's it's a much more like effective way to optimize a class for skill development versus like you know you warm up for thirty minutes you do two moves, there's no context given, and then you just do open rolling. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, it's not optimized for skill development, but it is optimized for fun. So, <laughs> but my question is, I think we could do both. I think you can optimize a class for skill development and also have it be very fun and have it be an appealing consumer product, you know, because ultimately that's how we're going to pay the bills. People are going to want to have to pay for it, you know? So, yeah. So if you were to start with a brand new student, so let's just, let's, let's be hypothetical. You've opened your academy yeah. and you've got a day one white belt, uh, walking in the door. What would be the first thing you'd show him in jujitsu or her? Well, okay. Um, uh, what are the student's goals? The first thing I always ask a student, I ask, I always ask three questions when I get a, a first student. Okay. Or when I get a student, I say, how old are you? What do you weigh? What are your goals? Okay, these three questions are going to determine where I take the student. There isn't a single, there's not like a single starting point. So give me, give me like a random, like create a character. <laughs> okay, so in this case, let's talk about a uh, 25-year-old male who uh, just got out of college and is in average shape, not overweight. Um, mm-hmm. So let's just say, you know, average athleticism, might have played sports recreationally, watched the UFC, and is interested in trying out jujitsu and and doing something and probably doesn't like getting punched in the face. So they're like, I, I want to do this jujitsu thing because Joe Rogan talked about it on his podcast. Okay, so he doesn't really want to compete. Competition is not his goal. Right now, no. Competition is not his goal. His goal is uh, he first wants to do it. But obviously he wants to get better, I, yeah. you know, because um, he walked in the door. But his goal is not, right, I want right. to be a world champion at IBJJF mm-hmm. or ADCC or anything like that. Okay, fair. Okay, so I would start him off, um, given what you've told me, probably with one of, I'd probably teach him two things at the same time. These are actually the things I would usually start a student with. Leg lock defense and pin escapes. I would teach him, those these, Those are the two, in my opinion, most fundamental defensive skill sets. Leg lock defense and pin escapes. And then after that, I would shift probably to guard retention and then also probably to, I would teach him back control. So those are, those are usually the first things I teach a student. So it, again, it'll change a lot depending on like what their goals are. Yeah. Obviously you can imagine that conventional wisdom would be like, you're teaching leg lock defense to a day one person. That's insane. That's that I can imagine a lot of people saying that. So 
what's your rationale for teaching uh, pin escapes? I'm 100% to me, it's logical. Um, uh, you know, just on, on a side note for me, like when I started jujitsu, where was I? I was on bottom side control. What did I get? What was the first skill I got to develop and improve upon getting out of side control? What was the first sort of system I had to learn how to get out of side control? Like all that, just because of the nature of being on bottom, I, that's, I was forced upon that leg locks generally they're like, Oh, you don't teach those to people until they're blue belts or something. So what's your rationale for doing that? Cause I think it's really interesting. I think I love leg locks. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like what, what's the rationale there? All right. So I, the rationale is that in my academy, they're going to be getting heel hooks from day one. There is not going to be anyone who's not going to be doing heel hooks on them. So I find this, I find this like weird attitude about you can't teach leg locks until they're a blue belt. Like very bizarre. What do you guys think is going to happen at blue belt? Do you think they'll magically cross a certain line and then like the, Oh, now it's safe. Okay. Okay. No, like safety in leg locks comes from two things, people respecting taps and knowledge, people having knowledge, defensive and offensive knowledge. And I think defensive knowledge ought to come first. So the, all of the same rationale you'd give for why someone ought to learn pin escapes at in, in, in an early stage of grappling are the same reasons you'd want to advocate for them learning leg lock defense at an early stage of grappling, right? So in my academy, my hypothetical academy that doesn't exist yet, <laughs> my academy, everyone is going to be doing upper body attacks to them and lower body attacks. I have heel hooked first day white belts and not it's been fine. They, their legs didn't explode because I know how to do the move slowly. I know how to control what's going on. I have in my entire life never accidentally injured someone with a leg lock. It has never happened accidentally. It's happened in competition on purpose, but <laughs> that's their fault. They did that. Accidentally, I've never injured someone. Okay. And I've done like, I don't even know, at this point, literally probably thousands of heel hooks on people. Heel hooks and knee bars are my two favorite leg locks. And I've never accidentally injured somebody because I know how to do it with control. And I know how to, um, you know, like uh, basically dictate the pace of what's going on, right? Um, if you know how to do that, they're, they're as safe as any other joint lock. I will grant, yes, the consequences of not tapping to a heel hook are much more severe than the consequences of not tapping to a straight arm bar. The straight arm bar is going to heal. That your knee ligaments are not, but a shoulder that's not going to heal your rotator cuff. You're going to need surgery on that. You know? So why is that? You know, why don't we ban? Oh, no Kimura's until purple. Well, why not? It's cultural. That's the only reason why. And I, you know, I just know from personal experience, like, look, I have, so I had a student once, um, I forget this kid's name. He was, he was so funny. I had a student who was very interested in leg locks and he was like a brand new white belt. And as kind of like a little experiment, the only thing I taught this kid was 50-50 heel hooks for like six months. That's <laughs> the only thing I taught him. <laughs> and I, I was like, let's see. Let's see what happens with this kid. Man, I wish I remembered his name. Uh, one, of, one of my old students is going to watch this and be like, hey, that was his name. That was his name. <laughs> uh, but he was the kid was so funny. Uh, and he was like... And he wound up getting really good at that one thing and he was good at nothing else. Um, and like never, no one ever got injured because all of my students knew they all learned the defenses. They all learned the offense, the offensive moves. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a safe, respectful environment. So I think the most important thing at an early stage is defense. And I think the most impor important early defenses, if you're talking about a complete grappling game, 
are going to be, we got to have upper body escapes. We got to have lower body escapes. So it's going to be pin escapes and that's going to be leg lock defense. And, and I want to be clear, there's different types of leg lock defenses. I would not teach a first day white belt how to heel slip. <laughs> I don't, I don't think heel slipping is smart, you know, even for heel slipping, to be honest, in my opinion, even if you're an upper belt, most of the time is stupid. Like, you know, it's like you're risking your limb. At that point, if they got you and they're good, you probably shouldn't get out. Um, if it works, it's probably because they just don't know what they're doing. Um, uh, but but other things like hiding your heel, you know, knowing how to hide your heel, knowing how to stay safe positionally, these things. These things, I think, are totally safe for, for anyone at any level to know. And I, and I will say also, this is backed by experience. I've coached, like, I have coached many people from an early stage and started them off with leg locks. Like, I had one person who the only thing I taught this person was leg locks for uh, maybe a, may, I would say leg locks. I taught, I taught them leg locks, guard retention, leg lock defense. Uh, and I think some triangles. That was the main thing I taught them for like a year. And they, you know, they, they, they were totally safe, no injuries. And they performed very well against other people who had been training as long as them. You know, they had a big skill advantage in certain key areas, which led them. And even though this person was, um, they were, uh, this, is a, this is a girl, she was pretty small, uh, but she was able to do really well against guys because of her leg locks, you know? So, yeah, I know that's the common knowledge. You shouldn't, but I don't, I don't agree with it. <laughs> well, I, and, and, and I, I agree with you. No, I agree with you. Um, I agree that most of the issues, uh, if not all of them can be attributed to ignorance, either on the attacker's end or on the defender's end that leads to injuries. Um, you know, the, the, the title of this podcast is BJJ Improves because it, its genesis was a bunch of us sitting around on the mats afterwards, like a lot of people, and somebody started drinking beers, and we'd have a beer or two and chit-chat after a Saturday class. And if you said this, my natural reaction, because I will challenge you to some degree, is, but what about yeah, yeah. some schizo white belt that's hard to actually teach? Now, you've had yeah. – you, you've told me. I've, I've taught tons of people, and I haven't had this issue. I know you've encountered schizo white belts. So how yeah. do you deal with those personalities, whether it be the meathead or whatever, yeah. and make them safe very quickly so that they don't jeopardize the health of themselves or their training partners? Yeah. Um, I don't, again, so here's the tricky thing. It's, it's a very interesting problem, but it's not a leg lock problem. That in my mind is a joint lock problem. And also, no, like I agree with you. It's not leg lock. It's everything is yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's also just like a moron problem. Like you're, you're a moron. So the issue is, so the solution is maybe instructors don't want to hear this. <laughs> yeah. The solution is cut them off. I give people a few chances. If you keep training in a reckless way, you're not allowed in my class. Get out of my class. I have kicked not a lot of people, but I've kicked people out of my classes. Like I'm not afraid to do it. If you are going to train in, or I, I, there's a lot of people that don't understand how to train safely. But if after coming in and me explaining to you, listen, you, um, you know, like I'll give you an actual example. I was rolling with actually a blue belt. This is absurd that a blue belt did this. I had this kid's back and he just proceeded to headbutt me and he gave me a bloody nose. And I was like, bro, what, what are you doing? This is, this was my class. Yeah. And I was like, you can't, you can't do that. And he goes, I'm just trying to get out. I'm like, so like, what was the escape there? Like, what was the plan to escape with the headbutt me? He goes, no, no, I was trying to bridge to get out. I'm like, yeah, but man, you literally didn't bridge. Your hips stayed on the mat. Your head just went right into my nose. And so I told him, I was like, dude, you got to not do that. That's super reckless. You got to control your movements. You know what I mean? It's And um, a big part of it is, I think, developing a culture, a culture in the room, a culture of 
It's not about winning rounds. It's about getting better progressively. You got to develop a culture where, and I mean this seriously, this might sound like corny or whatever, but it's like, it's not about winning in the, it's not about winning in the room. If you care about winning in the room, that's where injuries are going to happen. You know, and the trick is you're right. Sometimes people are not going to, they're not going to be conducive to that. And that's when you have to be willing. You have to be willing to, to cut people off and say, like, I have told people you can't come back. Like you're training in a way and I, for other reasons too. Like I, so there was a person who actually, I'm not going to say names or anything, but I, there was a person who threatened someone else on social media. So this person went on social media and threatened another student. And then this person came to my class. I was like, you, you cannot come to my class. I was like, I, I, I don't own the, I didn't own the gym that I was teaching. I was like, look, I don't own the gym. You, you can come to other people's classes, but you threatened another student. You were hundred percent not welcome in my class. So that person was not allowed back in my class because it, it's a, you know, that it's all really, it's all about safety, right? So that was a safety issue. People are training like morons. That's a safety issue. Um, things, things like that. Like basically as a coach, you just got to heavily monitor and be on top of the attitudes um, and the way people are carrying themselves in the environment. And you have to accept not everyone will be conducive to a safe training environment. And what that might mean for you as an instructor is losing a membership. That sucks. But if someone's going to train in a way that is going to hurt people, they can't, you can't have them. You know what I mean? You gotta, you know, that you gotta be willing to cut them off. So that's not a, not a nice way to put it, but I think that's ultimately, you know, I, I'm not saying right away, you give them chances. You, people don't know. I'm not saying you kick them out right away. You give them chances. You try to teach them, try to explain to them. If after like, let's say four tries, like the guy's still doing stuff, and especially if it's the same thing, if it's different things, that's more excusable, right? So I had, an, I had a situation where I was rolling with a student and the student tried to pass my guard. And basically what he did was he, um, did a, <laughs> he did a front flip onto my face. Okay. And so <laughs> like I told him like, listen, I know you saw Mark Hunt do that in pride. Yeah. I was like, you can't do that in class. You know what I mean? Like you can't be jumping on top of me and like first of all that's not an effective guard pass he didn't pass my guard i just put my shins up and frame <laughs> like you're not gonna pass people's guard like that too you're just putting people at risk you cannot you cannot jump in the air um like that so one of the people i've learned the most from this actually is my coach john Danaher. he has super strict safety rules and if you do not abide by those rules you are fucking told to, to walk out like, and he's super strict. He's, I would say, stricter than I am. Um, maybe I'll get to that point someday down the line. Maybe he's seen so much bullshit that he's like, I just have no patience for this. You know, like, he, like one of his safety rules is no pressure to the side of the knee when you're standing. So when you're going for a takedown, and he always shows examples of this before class. He says, you cannot put pressure to the side of the knee. Another safety rule he has is no jumping guard. Like, that's another, as a rule that I have in my classes, no jumping guard. Jumping guard is absolutely unacceptable um it is not an effective technique and all it does is create severe severe injury risk you know what i mean there's other ways to pull guard where we don't need to threaten our training partner's ligaments every single time we do it okay so um yeah anyway i've been going on for a while i think you understand like where i'm coming from no completely and 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 i think it's something that is like like you said i think culturally we're probably at a certain place collectively and to be a little stricter about protocols on the mat is deviating from that median a little bit. But I think over time, hopefully as the sports matures, this goes back to our previous point, 
um, I think there is a good chance we'll get to a point where, um, for lack of a better term, it'll be more sport driven in terms of structure, uh, both in terms of what's taught and what's allowed in terms of protocol and, and how we approach approach things. You know, um, you mentioned uh, offline, and I didn't know this that you actually lived in Orlando for a period of time. And this blew my mind. <laughs> and you said it's okay to ask, so I'm kind of curious. First of all, uh, when were you down here? Where were you? Because I'm intimately familiar with the area. And if you were training, where were you training and who were you training with? Okay, so I don't know where my apartment was. Like, I, I don't know Orlando that well that I could, like, pinpoint exactly where it was. I remember what it looks like, obviously. But, like, I don't really remember. It was in a gated community. Um, uh, so I, I was training at the jungle, you know, Mike, Mike Lee and, and those guys. Yep. Yep. So I was, tra- I was training there. I really, I really liked it. It was very good. Uh, only thing I didn't like was they made you wear belts in the Nogi class. I was like, if it fell off and rolling, they'd let you keep it off. But I was like, then why can't we just like not even have it on? <laughs> it was like, I don't know. I thought it was dumb, but that's the only yeah. complaint I had. Otherwise great Academy. I love training with them. Very leg lock friendly, really, really good environment. Um, uh, so I was, I was down there in probably 2015, I think it was. So basically what had happened was, um, I wanted to live somewhere cheaper than New York. New York is very expensive. Okay. So I was like, where can I go? That's not so expensive. You know, uh, at the time I had, uh, uh, been pretty close to finishing my bachelor's degree, but I could, so I was going to Queens college, but UCF has a good philosophy program. So I was like, well, I could transfer to UCF. I never wound up transferring. I moved down there and I, I was in Orlando for like two months. Uh, and I was gonna, I was only in Orlando like two and a half months. I'll tell you why I left. I just got homesick. <laughs> uh, I was I was gonna Aww. go to UCF and then I went, I'm not happy. Yeah, <laughs> I got homesick for New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny because in hindsight, I like Orlando. A, I mean, I, I like it a lot. It's I would say in my top five, top five U.S. cities for sure. Like it's one of the only U.S. cities I would actually consider living in. Like I love the Orange County Central Public Library. Like that thing is fucking beautiful. That's like, in my opinion, the most beautiful library I've ever seen. It's better than any library we have here in New York. It <laughs> Here in New York. <laughs> but any better than any library in New York. Uh, but like, it's an awesome library. And like, I, you know, jujitsu is very popular in Orlando. And on top of that, also, fun fact, uh, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on a podcast. I worked at Universal Studios. <laughs> that was like one of my favorite jobs I ever had. I was the, uh, I worked at the River Adventure, you know, like the, the big water job ride. Yeah. So I worked there <laughs> and I, I, I love that. I thought it was like a super fun, super, like very easy job, like not difficult whatsoever. And like, uh, I got such a kick out of it, but I, Honestly, I got homesick for New York. And on top of that, also, I was like, I had started at Henzo's and then I went to Orlando. I'd been at Henzo's for maybe, I want to say six months before I went to Orlando. And a, a big part of why I went back was Henzo's. Like, I remember I was watching. So this is how I could figure out when I specifically was in Orlando. Because I was in Orlando when EBI Mexico happened. Um, so I was watching EBI Mexico 
And I remember, I forget, I forget which numbered event this was. I want to say like 13, I think it was. And I remember watching it and being like, damn, like I want to be back training with the squad. Like that's, it's like, fuck man, I really want to train with those guys. Like I want to learn from them. And so like, that was, that was a big motivation for me to go back. And also like, I grew up in New York. I'm very like nostalgic for, for New York. If anyone checks my stories, you'll see me like talking about New York all the time. <laughs> it's uh, I describe my relationship with New York, like a bad relationship, <clears throat> like a, like a bad girlfriend, like a bad ex or something. It's like, you know, she's not good for you and you got to let her go, but it's like, you still love her. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So, like, so yeah, I, I, I went back and, you know, I mean, like, can I say that? I don't say that I, I regret it because if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be doing jujitsu at the level that I am now. Who knows what I'd be doing now? Probably would be teaching probably would be teaching philosophy. I probably would have gone through with that and done that. Um, but I didn't. So I'm here where I am now. And, um, you know, but I would go, Orlando is one of the only cities in the U S like I said, that I would, I would definitely live in it because I, I really like it overall. I love the theme parks. I like the library. The one issue, the one issue with Orlando, no train system. You got to drive. I fucking hate driving. So <laughs> that's the only issue. Otherwise, very nice. Place. Yeah. Public transport in Orlando is pretty rough. I mean, there is a yeah. bus system. People do use it, but honestly, you do need a car to get around. It's just the sprawl, and, and it's how it is. It's funny you mentioned Universal because uh, my main training partner, Victor, um, worked at Universal uh, quite a bit. Um, he's now at UCF, actually, but um, for a long time, he was uh, he was working there, and he, because of the way he could do his schedule, he would work like night shifts from, let's say, 10 to 4 or or eight to four, like eight at night to four in the morning. And then he could still train during the day and stuff. And he told me all these crazy stories about, you know, um, cause they would rent that park. I didn't know this. You, you didn't probably know this working. There's like the park, they'll close at a certain time and then rent it out for executive events for companies or for, there's like a high school bash where they do it. And it's just, it's crazy, but it's a great, like you said, it's a great place to work. Um, especially for a jujitsu athlete, because it gives you that flexibility of a schedule where you can train. Um, were you only training at the jungle? Did you hop into any other gyms in the area? Or were you training exclusively at the jungle? I was training exclusively at the jungle. That was the only place I trained. Um, yeah, I, I liked it there. So I didn't feel a need to go anywhere else. Um, and I, I also, at the time I actually had like a, I had a pretty bad hand injury, which really sucked. So it like my training was not as I was training and I was getting good training in, but it wasn't as consistent as I would have liked it to have been. So yeah, I mean, I, I only had time for, for one one gym, uh, and also the injury kept me off. Gotcha. Yeah. Sure. So, um, so Rob, we've been going for an hour. I really appreciate the time you, you, you've given to us right now. Before we go, I do have one little bone to pick with you. Um, okay. <laughs> I've heard you profess your love for the Star Wars prequels, and yeah. I'm a diehard, I mean, I'm a diehard Star Wars fan. I, uh, I've read so many of the books starting with like heir to the empire. This was in the nineties before yeah. they, they like redid Canon and with the new movies and stuff. So when I saw Metaclorians and when I saw Misa Jar Jar Binks, like I, 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 I wanted yeah. to wretch in my mouth, so to speak. So give me your case as to why you think the prequels are solid movies that are part that should, that should belong in the Star Wars universe. Cause I, I want to hear it. I have an open mind. I want to be convinced. Yeah. Okay. So 
So I will say I also was a massive fan of the expanded universe, which which now Disney has decided is is legends. I hate that term so much. It's so stupid. Like I was a big fan of. I read Heir to the Empire. Uh, like I loved Thrawn. I lo- like Timothy Zahn's books were great. Like there's so many great expanded universe material that got rendered not canon by Disney, which sucks. Um, I love Knights of the Old Republic, etc. Right. I watched the original trilogy when I was really, really little, I was like really small. Um, and I, I think I was like seven when the pre, when the first prequel came out, right. I saw that in theaters. I will never forget sitting in that theater. And at, when, when the Gungans were fighting the droids, I remember, I remember thinking to myself, I can't believe movies can be this good. I was like, this is, I had never seen a movie that good. I was like, it's, I, I couldn't even believe it. And, and it's like, it's because like, Ultimately, Star Wars is made for kids. Now, I don't think that's an excuse for the movies to be stupid. And I do think a lot of the criticisms of the prequels are totally valid. Like, I think the dialogue is awful. The effects are frequently terrible. The acting isn't good. The plot is, like, meandering. But it's like, the reason why I like them is because there's two reasons. One, just on a spectacle level. As a kid, I'm watching these movies. I'm like, this shit is so fucking awesome. I was like, this is fucking amazing. Like, I remember when episode two came out, Attack of the Clones. I loved, I'm a big, I'm a big Boba Fett and Jango Fett fan. So I have, <laughs> I have right here this Boba Fett Lego that I got recently, <laughs> which I'm going to be making. Oh, badass. Yeah. And I have in my luggage down there, I have, um, I have a Jango Fett toy and I have, I, yeah, I actually brought this with me. I have like a Boba Fett toy. I have a bunch of like b- the bounty hunters and stuff. And I remember watching an Attack of the Clones when Django's a really big part. I was like, "Wow, my God, it's he's so fucking cool!" You know, and like so it was it was really like awesome as a kid. But now as an adult, I also appreciate them because I think that they are, in a sense, beautiful failures, if you will. They're like their goal is so epic. Their goal is to create this epic story of uh, like a tragedy of the, the the downfall of this man. And they're also hilarious because they're like not well made. Like I think on a filmmaking level, like the acting is terrible. The dialogue is so bad. So it's like, it's like this amazing mix of like this genuinely like Shakespearean operatic story of like this character's like rise and fall. And it's so like powerful on like a, like an emotional and thematic level. But then you have stuff like Anakin being like, I hate sand course it gets everywhere just terrible lines of dialogue (laughs) anakin confessing to padme that he just committed genocide and padme's like it's okay to be human (laughs) your boyfriend just told you he murdered an entire group of people (laughs) so it's like there's just like to me it's like it's just really fun because it's like it's got this epic amazing storyline but it's also it's got so many hilarious memes. So that's why I always say the original trilogy is the best trilogy on a filmmaking level. No question. The most fun trilogy are the prequels, you know, and the sequels, in my opinion, shouldn't exist. So <laughs> that's a topic for another day though. So, okay. So you're, you're a massive Boba Fett fan. So I will, I will fully yeah. nerd out and we'll lose our entire audience at this point, <laughs> but who cares at the end? Um, 
So um, are you familiar, because you read the extended universe, are you familiar with yeah. um, the book Tales from Jabba's Palace, which was like a comp? Okay, cool. So yeah. I always like, I was, when I first found out that Boba Fett was a clone, it kind of like made me feel weird because I was used to the origin of him sort of being this outcast Imperial that yeah. put on the Mandalorian armor. And then he, he had this awesome story of getting out of the Sarlacc pit. Um, yeah. And then later reappeared in, I believe, Dark Empire, um, which was like mm -hmm. a collection of, uh, it was like a graphic novel was where they first, yeah. anyway, bottom line is, um, are you like, uh, what, what's your feeling on, on how Disney has rewritten the canon? And are you like, let's put it this way. Do you, yeah. do, do you prefer the original Boba Fett origin or do you like the current one with him coming with the Django Fett, the line, then what we've seen in the Mandalorian and how they've introduced yeah. him and in retconned kind of his origins a little bit too. So it's, it's funny you, you bring up the, the Tales books because I've been hunting down for a copy of Tales of the Bounty Hunters because I really, I like, I read it when I was younger and I, I gave away most of my Star Wars books. Um, and that one is probably one of my favorites. I love the old Boba Fett backstory where he was journeyman protector Jaster Mareel. Like, and he was on Concord Dawn and the whole mm -hmm. situation where he had killed an Imperial senior or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I really liked the way that the writer characterized him as kind of this sort of like, he was kind of like um, a, a Clint Eastwood style. Like he wasn't really a bad guy, but he wasn't really a good guy. And he was like, he had like a strict code of ethics. If you remember in that story, Java actually fucking is pretty dark. Java gives Boba Leia for the night. He's like, hey, you can, you can rape her. And Boba's like, I'm not going to do that. He's like, it's not ethical. Yeah. And, and he, he said, and he just sat on the side. Yeah. I remember that. He's yeah. like, you're okay. You just sit, you have a sleep. I'm just going to sit here on the side. Very honorable. Yeah. Kind of thing. And they have a conversation about ethics where she's like, why don't you join the rebellion? And he gives us, and he, he doesn't agree with the rebellion. He thinks it's like, he basically is like, I think Boba Fett was basically, he's basically a fascist. He's basically a fascist who has like sort of like a code of honor still sort of like a religious fascist, right? And so he's an interesting sort of bad guy character. So, yes, I do agree. Some of that kind of got taken away by the clone stuff. Um, but I think it's interesting to see how they kind of, throughout the history of, of the character, that, so journeyman protector Jaster Muriel was retconned to be Django Fett's mentor, okay? And then Boba at one point took on the name Jaster Mareel and became a journeyman protector on the planet Concordon because he wanted to give up his life of bounty hunting. So that whole, that was still canon. They found a way to make it canon through like some loopholes and stuff. And so it's like, I don't know. I still like it. I, I think he's an awesome character throughout all his iterations. And like, like the, the crux of what makes him a good character is just that he's cool. Like, that's really it. There's no depth to his character. He's just fucking cool. Like, he's just, like, you know, he only had, like, four lines in the in the original trilogy. And, like, I think, I thought that the episode of The Mandalorian where he came back, like, the big one, was fucking awesome. I, it's funny, like, my story is the day that it came out, I was like, oh, I was like, it's so good. Like, it's so, it was so great. Uh, like, I loved it. And, like, I'm very excited for the new, the book of Boba Fett. Um, and, and just like, like a brief comment on like the entirety of the canon, I'm not really happy with what Disney's done for the most part. I think the sequels weren't very good. I think it kind of sucked. Uh, so they're kind of fun at points, but I didn't really like it that much. 
I thought I think a lot of the canon destruction has been like pointless. I don't see why they had to get rid of all the canon. Like they're replacing it with stuff that's just like mediocre copies. They're not even like it's not even new what they're doing. Like they got rid of Knights of the Old Republic and now they have the High Republic. It's like you're just copying what you got rid of. Like you could have just kept that around. But I don't know. They have their motivation, I'm sure, financially to do so. So yeah. Ultimately the way I see it is that Star Wars is it's it, none of it's real. So like we can digest what we like and just ignore the stuff we don't like. Like I don't care about the sequels. Like that, I, I, as a Star Wars fan, I think you have to be willing to just accept you don't have control over the product. And if they want to put out stupid shit, you can just ignore it. So I take, I take the stuff that I like, which is a lot of the old EU. I like the old EU. I like, um, I like the Mandalorian. I like the original trilogy. I like the prequels. I, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded as to anything. I'll, I'll try anything out, but a lot of it, it, the sequels and stuff related to that, probably not going to like. So anyway. <laughs> well, I think uh, on the, the, the last thing I'll say about, about Star Wars is um, uh, I, I think you're right. Like, for example, like I'm really, really hoping that they tell like the Starlack story because I think Boba Fett escaping yeah, yeah. the Starlack is is an awesome even if that's just an episode in the series I think you could condense that story into like a 40 minute episode and it would still be very fascinating um yeah I think like Mara Jade deserves to be in like she's such an <laughs> awesome character that that's so prevalent in the EU that I think they should bring her yeah. in um but it's just, I think like anything, it's like... She's not coming back, I think. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. We'll, we'll see. It's just... Yeah, I, I wish. It's just I odd. Yeah. It's, so. just, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, I think like anything, it's like a fan base got... so, And I, I'm one of them because I was a big fanboy. It's like yeah. you get viscerally attacked... Not attacked. Attached to the material and it kind of takes on a life of its own. It's Last Star Wars question for you. What... Um, what um, it could be anything. It could be. E I'm guessing it's going to be from the EU. What character or story that hasn't been included in the canon with Disney would you like to see told or retold um, in some sort of cinematic form, whether it's a miniseries on Disney Plus or a full fledged movie? What would you like to see explored? Well, I'll say what I would like, but I'd be scared. <laughs> I'd be like, please don't fuck it up. Just like tell it the way it was told back then. Is a uh, Darth Darth Revan from the Knights of the Old Republic? So the first Knights of the Old Republic, like that storyline. Anyone who okay. played that game, yeah, that game was fucking awesome. That game has actually one of the best Star Wars stories ever. Like it's a very good. The the storyline is one of the best parts of the game, and like he's such a fucking cool character. Um. I'd be so scared Disney would ruin it, <laughs> but I'd like to see it. And like, I think there's a lot of, a lot of people speculate they are eventually going to make that because he's such a well-loved character. And like, um, it's such a good story that like that, or even Knights of the Old Republic two, I think the second one is really good too. Revan's not a big part of the second one, but the second one is also really cool. Like it, like it's, there's a lot of cool philosophy, like philosophical elements to that. So, um, possibly, Possibly one of those two would be the things that I'd like to see the most, but I would be worried. <laughs> yeah, I played both games and I thought they were great. And I know the second game was cut, you know, was kind of cut short, like development wise, that they had even more planned and, and they weren't able to finish it. But there's some community patches that restored like some of the dialogue and, and content that was unreleased in the original game. Um, 
Rob, thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, um, if you have any plugs or anything you'd like to give shout outs to, the floor is yours. Um, so if you guys are interested in following me, you can check me out on Instagram. That's the place where I'm probably the most active. It's uh, Robert Deagle, BJJ. My last name is spelled D-E-G-L-E. Um, you can just put that in as like one one word. Uh, if you ever got like technical questions, you can shoot them my way. And I have, I got a couple instructionals out there. It's on my website, which the link is in my bio. It's robertdeaglebjjonline.com. A couple different topics. So you can see if, if any of them appeal to you. Awesome. Well, listen, yeah. <laughs> dude, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for doing it on such short notice. It was just one of those things. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank no you so worries. much. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And that's our show. So thank you so much for listening. Big thanks to Robert Deagle. If you want to follow him, his social media is Robert Deagle BJJ. That's at Robert Deagle BJJ. And he's got a lot of great content, like I said, at the outset of the podcast. And uh, if you're at all interested in, in learning more about him, that's a great place to start. You can also find his instructionals on robertdeaglebjjonline.com. Again, that's robertdeaglebjjonline.com for all his educationals, which um, if you you know, if you listen to how precise he is in our conversation, just imagine what those instructionals are going to be like. And then finally, guys, uh, check out our sponsors again, Crown Rash Guards. You can find them at Crown Rash Guards on Instagram and Facebook. You can also find them at www.crownrashguards.com. Use our promo code BRUISE for 20% off your next order. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next week, same time, same place. Goodbye.